Good morning. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all and share the Word of God with you. I just want to, before I start, uh, remind you that we have announcements in our bulletin. It goes up on um, just on, as a cycle outside on our TVs and things like that. So if you want to know the happenings in our church, I encourage you to check out our bulletin. You can get a paper copy outside, or you can continue to check out our TVs, which cycles through all the slides. Today's a special day because we have a college send-off. So the food is a little more special. Um, there is, a, there is a, a little, I think, some kind of program, right, for like a few minutes just to acknowledge the college people. But uh, as we pray for them and send them off to their various campuses, and I was telling people that that's why it looks like a dungeon outside. It's because we're sending them back to jail. Um, actually, it's for VBS, which starts tomorrow as well. So we have a lot of exciting things going on in our church, and I encourage you to check out the bulletin, and then you can also pray along with us and join us even. So I encourage you to join us even today. Uh, there's lots of good food, and so I hope that you can partake in some of that before you leave. As we start uh, this morning, let's start with a prayer. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from ear to the heart, from the heart of the lip and conversation that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word but accomplish that for which it is given. Amen. Uh, today's passage is from the first book of Samuel, and we'll be going through the entire chapter of 23, but let's read from verses 1 through 14 first. Um, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 14. And if you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 230. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah, and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Calah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. 
Will the men of Kalah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Kalah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kalah, and they went wherever they could go. When, David, when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This is the word of the Lord. If you have been running with us through 1 Samuel, the major themes of this chapter that we have read and that we will continue to read will sound familiar. <clears throat> so is this just a recap of what God has been doing in David's life? Or if it's so familiar, well, what has changed? I think even if we were to tack on the exact same themes, what we realize is people have changed. When you look at your own life, and you can look at the consistency of God in your life, even if God gives you his consistent love, steadfast love over and over again, the scenario, the circumstances, the situations that you are in are different because you have changed. David has changed. His maturity, his faith, his wisdom, and even his strength. Not only that, but the contrasts that are posed in this chapter are inescapable. Coming from chapters 21 and 22, Saul, by killing the priests at Nob, puts Israel into a more hopeless situation, while David, by saving Keilah, gives Israel hope. Saul's right-hand man and confidant is Doeg the Edomite, who bloodies Saul's hands by putting him in the company of other mass murderers. And then as we will read, David's right-hand man is Jonathan, who we will see strengthens David through God. There are many more contrasts that come up that we'll get to see in this chapter as we go through it. But I wouldn't just shut off or just be like, oh, this is similar or familiar themes and miss what God has for us in his word. So I have three points for us today and this morning, and that is point number one is heavenly intelligence, number two is heavenly encouragement, and number three is heavenly rescue. Heavenly intelligence, heavenly encouragement, and heavenly rescue. Kayla is in trouble. Kayla is a great name, by the way. I couldn't help but to think of like a dad joke when I was reading this. So if you put a possessive in front of Kayla, it's you, Kayla, or me, Kayla. And we do have a Michaela here. But I, could, I, I thought of Michaela a lot. Anyway, but Kayla is a city and a town, and they are in trouble. Kayla was three miles south of Adullam. And we remember the Adullam Caves, and David was once there. And so Kayla is a town there, and that place is in trouble. 
Why? Because the Philistines were robbing the threshing floors. What that meant was that while the Israelites would do all the farming and the harvesting, the Philistines would then come in and take all the grain. That's like when you would do all the work for a project and your manager comes in and takes all the credit along with the bonus that you would have gotten for finishing the project, along with the paycheck that you're supposed to get, along with your livelihood. It's more than just that is my point. It's everything. Because it wasn't just an annoyance for people like Kayla, but it was something that threatened their livelihoods and even their lives. No grain meant no bread, which meant no life. And so word got to David that this city, Kayla, was in trouble. It's fascinating to me that both David and Saul, all leaders, as we continue to read these chapters and passages, it's fascinating to me that all leaders, including David and Saul, but all leaders, I would imagine, they have such extensive intelligence networks. And that's why uh, this section I wanted to dub heavenly intelligence, meaning intelligence networks. Someone is always either telling David or Saul what is going on. And especially in times of war, intelligence, information, is crucial to a nation's survival and victory. As strong as you might be, if your intelligence is bad or you're given bad information, you're not given the vital information that's necessary, tragedy can occur, tragedy can strike. A well-known example is the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 caught everyone in that naval base by surprise, and they were left unprepared for battle. However, the U.S. earlier had managed to break Japanese diplomatic code that gave them a heads-up for their prepared attack. They already broke this code from Japan that would give the U.S. a heads up for the attack on Pearl Harbor. Not only that, there was a military attache in Java, which is in Indonesia, but in Java, and they had, one week before the attack, warned about a planned Japanese attack on Hawaii, the Philippines, and Thailand. There's more. Historians now gather that we have had more than enough information and data about the planned attack on Pearl Harbor, but the information just didn't get to the places it needed to for a variety of reasons. One, including, is um, they didn't believe it. When people heard it, they didn't bring it up the chain because they could not believe that the Japanese would carry out such a brazen attack against the U.S. And so that's where intelligence failed us. Intelligence helps and it can save as well. You know, our church, we're currently looking for a building, and one came up in our search, and it looked pretty decent. It looked half decent. But someone who was familiar with the building told me that that building floods frequently. And so it was good intel. And by telling me, potentially, it saved us and our church a lot of time and effort. And so David, after hearing Kayla was in trouble, 
he was willing to go to battle against the Philistines. That's the intelligence that he hears. After all, these were his people. This was in Judah. Kayla's in Judah, and David is from Judah. And in verse 2, David inquires of the Lord if he should go. David knew that while he had earthly intelligence, what he needed was heavenly intelligence. He needed God. He knew that he needed God. And God said, yes. However, after verse 2 and verse 3, we read that David's men were not as eager. It says in verse 3, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Kela against the armies of the Philistines? Saul is after them. He can easily overpower them, outnumber them. That's why they are hiding from him. Protecting Kela from the Philistines would not only, and they're saying to David, would not only put us in harm's way, but it would expose us to the king's men who want to completely annihilate us. So what does David do after getting this information, this intelligence? He asks God again, and God says, yes, again. So they go and lay a decisive blow against the Philistines and even drive their cattle away. And the reason why I think that's written is because we're assuming that the Philistines brought the cattle to eat all the grain. Now, when we get to verse 6, we should understand that verse 6 acts as sort of a hinge. So this section, uh, heavenly intelligence, is from verses 1 to 13. So verse 6 acts as a hinge between verses 1 through 5 and verses 7 through 13. So how did David commune with God to get his two yeses in the first five verses? The answer is verse 6. Abiathar had fled from Saul because Saul had all the priests who were at Nob killed. And when Abiathar came down to David, he brought the ephod along with him. So now we know how David had been communicating with God, and we'll see further how he communicates with God. What we see is David has an incredible advantage and we see that while human intelligence can fail, the Lord's direction never fails. David asks God two questions again from verses 10 to 12. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kela to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kela surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And David said, will the men of Kela surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. David gets his answers and knows exactly what to do. He immediately takes his men and leaves Kela. We see David enjoying an incredible privilege here. And the question you may ask after reading this section, the question you may ask is, can I also enjoy the same kind of privilege that David does? Can I also enjoy this kind of kingly privilege that David does? Meaning, meaning this, can I ask God, can I ask God, should I buy this electric car knowing that it uses fossil fuels just the same as any old car? And expect an answer, a clear answer like yes or no. And I think the real question for me is, should you? Should you expect an answer from God when you ask him about certain things? 
should you expect an answer from God? Because David's different from me. David's different from you. He is a king with a very special purpose. He's not like everyone else in Israel. Like God, they, they didn't go to God with questions and get an answer in the similar manner. David is one out of all the people in Israel. He's a very special person. David obviously has a much bigger role in redemption history than any other folk, even you and me. God doesn't need to say yes or no to my questions because my lineage won't lead to Jesus. But at the same time, at the same time, are we not called by Peter a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? So I do believe that when we are in dire straits, extreme situations, we should ask like David did, and we should expect an answer. We go to God in prayer, and God promises to hear our petitions. But I would add even further to that, that we have even more than what David had. Yeah, we have even more than what David had at his disposal. We have the Word of God at our fingertips. David did not have that. So where do we get that confidence that God would answer our prayers in our times of need? It is in the Word of God. And Pastor Paul opened up our service with this passage, but according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." We have a great high priest in Jesus Christ, someone much greater than Abiathar. So yes, through Christ and his word, we get help in our time of need. That is far greater than even what David received in that sense. So when we lift up our petitions to God, we lift them up knowing that Jesus has already conquered the world, that the world is under his authority, his jurisdiction, and that salvation, no matter what scenario a believer faces, salvation is assured because of what Christ has endured. The next point is heavenly encouragement. That's from verses 14 to 18. Heavenly encouragement. And here we come across another hinge verse. And these are verses, while not necessarily chronological, they join the passages above and below together. That's why I'm calling it a hinge verse. But verse 14 gives us a summary of events that are going to transpire in Ziph. But more importantly, it's going to give us this knowledge that Saul sought him every day, but the Lord never let him catch David. 
Saul sought him every day, but the Lord never let him catch David. Or if we were to put it another way, David may escape the clutches of Saul, but he will never escape the sovereign hand of God. And while Saul will never be able to find David, his son, Jonathan, does. He goes to David at Horish, and it says that he strengthened his hand in God. To have seen Jonathan in the wilderness must have been seeing something like a spring or an oasis in the desert for David. How refreshed David must have been. And some people just do that for you, don't they? They're not a drain, but they know in hard times to provide drink when you're going through the wilderness. And so how does Jonathan provide this heavenly encouragement to David? This is what Jonathan says. Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. In the Hebrew, I will be next to you means that Jonathan will be second. So I will be second to you. That's literally what he's saying. And just so you know, I mean, Jonathan is saying, just so you know, my father also knows this. He knows this to be true. So what is Jonathan doing here? Is he just hyping David? Is that what a true friend does? Is he a hype man? Jonathan is reaffirming God's promise to David. And this is why it's dubbed as hand in God. Hand in the Lord. This is what Jonathan does. He encourages David in this manner. Perhaps you might think that just seeing your best friend, spending time together, eating together might be good enough. But that's the main thing that the scriptures show us Jonathan is doing. Jonathan is doing probably all these things, but they're not, the scriptures isn't, are not showing us that. And I get it. Hanging out, eating, and drinking with the people you love can serve as a temporary encouragement when we need it. It's refreshing. It's good. I think so. I agree that it's good. However, however, the best encouragements, the most notable encouragements are not when we are sentimental with one another, but when we remind the one in the wilderness the promises of God. And heavenly encouragement comes from the word of God. Again, I'd like to reiterate that I am not saying that personal care and touch doesn't have its place in helping people through depression and other crises, but the most rock-solid, guaranteed, uplifting we receive is not from emotional responses, but from what God has said. And this is why when I get received prayers, when we go through hard times, when Esther and I went through hard times, whatever hard time, the biggest encouragement we remember are people who wrote us prayers in the Word of God. We even have some posted up on our refrigerator. Now that I've said this, we'll have to take it down uh, when anybody visits. But the biggest encouragements that last that make us and help us go through the wilderness 
are promises from the eternal Word of God. And I think that's one of the best forms of encouragement anyone could ever receive. In fact, if you struggle, if you are struggling with anxiety or depression, or you're going through some sort of calamity right now, have the Word preached to you. And if you don't have anyone there at the moment, preach the Word to yourself. It's the Word of God that lasts. It's the Word of God that will uplift. And perhaps maybe even as we continue to read this, we won't appreciate the timeliness and weightiness of Jonathan's visit. This visit is so perfect that we have to keep on reading. The Ziphites promised to give David up to Saul. So between the people of Calah, the people of Calah are cowards who wouldn't stand up for David, even though David saved them from destruction, from death, from doom, from poverty, from all these things. They wouldn't stand up to David because they heard what Saul did at Nob and they were scared. So they were cowards. And on the other side of this hinge verse it are the Ziphites. And the Ziphites are treacherous. They make a deal with Saul. This is what Psalm 54, in Psalm 54, David writes, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Psalm 54 is when David was going through this exact ordeal. He wrote Psalm 54 at this time in his life. See, the Ziphites don't even know David, but they want to sell him out. Why? To benefit themselves. So in between that, David has Jonathan come visit him. But this kind of almost perfect meeting points to a more perfect friend, a divine friend we have in Jesus. Jonathan Edwards on his deathbed was looking for this perfect friend. This is what is recorded in Ian Murray's uh, biography of him, but this is what it was recorded. This is what Jonathan Edwards said on his deathbed. Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? The Apostle Paul knew of this kind of divine friendship when he was t telling Timothy about this one instance where everyone deserted him except one. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, it says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in that way, Jonathan strengthens David. He strengthens his hand in God. More than his presence or his company, what David needed from Jonathan was to be strengthened in God. And that's when it says in the end of verse 18, Jonathan went home. As we'll continue to read, this is the last time that Jonathan and David will see each other. But the point is that Jonathan's presence isn't what was needed. There is a perfect presence that this pointed to. 
Final point is heavenly rescue. And we'll finish off the chapter from verses 19 to 28. The Ziphites disclose David's whereabouts to Saul. Saul, on hearing this, gives them a benediction and a further command and then a warning. He says that David is very cunning. He's a slippery one, so keep your eyes peeled. David, on hearing this, goes to Maon or Maon and lives there. And the next series of verses are written where the tension is palpable. Saul goes down to Ziph. David moves on to Maon. Saul goes down to Maon. David goes to the rock in Maon. Saul goes to the rock. And then what ends up happening is David ends up on one side of the mountain and Saul is right on the other side of the mountain. And this is what it says in verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain and David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And his men are closing in on David is a very, very, uh, very vivid picture. They're right on your tail. They're so close in capturing you. And that's when it says, a messenger comes frantic, shouting, hurry, come back. The Philistines are raiding the land. And so Saul has to turn back because otherwise there might be no kingdom to turn back to. And just like that, David escapes again, but this time by a hair's breadth. And so they decide to call it the rock of escape. Or if you look in your Bibles, the rock of divisions because it's such an unforgettable place. David could have said, wow, this is pretty lucky. This is pretty lucky. But whether you believe it was luck or where it was God, I believe this is a human response because even attribution is an acknowledgement of an outside power. Because we are expressive people. We express things. We don't just hold it in, right? And when we see something amazing, it's almost involuntary. It's almost visceral. We express it. When we see something that is out of the ordinary, there is an expression that comes out because we are expressive. That is an acknowledgement of an outside power. If you truly believe that there is no God. Let's say you're an atheist, and then that means throughout time there was nothing, 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 nothing for all eternity, and then all of a sudden there's a blip, and then nothing, 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 nothing. We're just a blip, and we'll disappear soon enough. What's the point of expressing? What's the point of anybody acknowledging anything? There's no point in that kind of acknowledgement. There's no point in that expression. There's no point in even trying to survive. Don't you see, if there was no outside power, there'd be no point to anything. It's just us in a blip, and then we're done. We're done. The universe we know is going to decay right now. That this universe has an end. It had a beginning, and it will have an end. And the end is coming. And so are we just a blip? And if that's the case, then what's the point of expressing it? But for some reason, in our evolutionary development, 
we decided to express. And our expressions are the things that stand out the most about us. And when we see something like this, we can't help but to be like, this is the rock of escape. I want to remember this place because something fantastic happened here. There was um, a study on a poll done. In fact, we are becoming less Christian as a nation, but we are not becoming more atheistic, meaning the atheists aren't on the rise. I think people innately know this. So what's happening? People are becoming more paganistic. That's what's happening. And I shared this uh, video with other people, like people who are even having, like, they're taking abortifacients, they're having an abortion, they would like put their abortion pills on like a candle, and this is so that good energy goes into the pills so that you could have a good abortion. The, it was a whole ceremony for like a long time that you would see, and this person put it on TikTok, so people could also see that if you have an abortion, you should also you know, make sure that there's good energy and tells you how to dispose of the fetal remains, as she would call it. It's a life, and there's energy because an outside power gave it energy. And so, yes, while Christianity might be on the dip, I believe atheism isn't on the rise. It's paganism. We want to believe in anything else other than God. Because God, there is an outside power that tells us what is good and what is bad. We are not that outside power. There's something that tells us this is good, just like we read in Romans chapter 7. And so that's why I believe that we are expressive. We are expressive because we are made so that someone else hears that expression. There's a purpose to our expressions. And that's why David calls it the rock of escape or the rock of divisions. It's such an unforgettable place. They were so close to catching them. And all of a sudden, a messenger comes and says, you got to get back because the Philistines are raiding. How close was that? It's so amazing. I need, to, I need to make have a name for this kind of event. And so this time the saviors for David are unexpected. They are the Philistines. But that's how God's providence many times works. They are unexpected. We could not have imagined such a scenario. And yet here we are because someone saved us. In Psalm 54, David continues on from what I've read. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. There's so many ironies in the salvation story that we have been given. No one could have imagined how the passion and suffering of Jesus Christ could ever lead to salvation for us. But his death, his life, it was so full. Both his life and death were so full that we can't miss this irony that through his death, we escape death. And through his life, we are given new life. And so here we are seeing this pointing to the perfect, this perfect intelligence. So this heavenly intelligence is pointing to the perfect intelligence, which points to the perfect priest. And this heavenly encouragement is pointing to the perfect friend. And this heavenly rescue is pointing to the perfect Savior that we have 
in Jesus Christ. This is why when we put our faith in Jesus, it is not just some sort of ritual that we do. It's not just some habit that we are just to be given into. But when we put our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, we live this life that God shows that He is not only alive, but He is the helper and salvation of His people. No matter what scenario that you are going through, God is your Savior. And that's what it means to be His people. And that's why it's a different take. Every scenario, every season that you go through, it's a different take when you hear the benediction on Sunday, the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord be kind to you. The Lord be faithful to you. You know that benediction? And there's this one part in that benediction where it says, The Lord turn His face toward you and be gracious to you. And that's what we see in our lives. That God is turning His face toward us as He is gracious to us. He's the one blessing us and keeping us. And then He's lifting up His countenance to us and giving us peace. This incredible blessing, this benediction is given to us by the Word of God because the Word of God is showing this is what God means for His people. It can get really close. It can get really hard. But no, this is what God is saying. God is saying that I will bless you and keep you no matter what, no matter what. That I will turn my face toward you and be gracious to you no matter what, no matter what. And I will lift up my countenance to you and give you peace. No matter what. That's why God is so good and His Savior is so perfect. So praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you give us this morning. It serves not only as a reminder, but a great and perfect encouragement, pointing us to the great and perfect priest who we know through Jesus Christ we have been given a perfect salvation. Oh God, help us now to live according to this truth, sharing with the world and wherever you send us what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let's take this time to pray. And as we reflect on the Word of God, pray that the Word of God would go inside and do a work thoroughly, deeply, and completely in you, that just as we have been continuing to learn, that the Lord's sanctifying work would not be hindered, but continue on in your life, that you may be changed day by day, just as David is being changed to become more holy like Jesus. Let's pray.